You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode takes us to the University of Utah, where a young track star meets a man who isn't quite who he says he is. Lauren McCluskey grew up in Pullman, Washington, with parents Matt, a physics professor, and Jill, an economics professor. Both of her parents were employed at the University of Washington. Lauren also had a little brother named Ryan. From a very early age, Lauren was a star. She loved to run from the age of two, her mother would say. Lauren McCluskey, Lauren McCluskey grew up in Pullman, Washington, with parents Matt, a physics professor, and Jill, an economics professor. Both of her parents were employed at the University of Washington. Lauren also had a little brother named Ryan. From a very early age, Lauren was a star. She loved to run from the age of two, her mother would say. At the age of eight, she broke three records in a junior Olympics track meet in just one day. She competed and excelled in several different track and field events in high school, becoming the Washington State champion in the high jump. Now, Lauren was very driven and very hard on herself. Her mother was her track coach, so the two shared a very close bond, but there didn't seem to be any tension that can maybe characterize a parent-child coaching arrangement. Lauren was notoriously shy and was quiet. In high school, she had a small group of close girlfriends, but no time for boys and never had a serious long-term boyfriend. She also spent her time volunteering at the local Humane Society in her downtime. She was known for her love of cats. Lauren enrolled at the University of Utah, signing a letter of intent to compete in track for the school, which had recruited her. Lauren, an introvert, initially had a bit of a tough adjustment to the big school. She would often hang out only with her roommate, Alex, and generally kept to herself. But by 2018, she had a lot of friends, a supportive team, and a newfound confidence. Lauren was pursuing a communications degree and maintained a high GPA even while competing in sports for the school. She was looking forward to graduating and moving to San Diego where she could be outside year-round. Lauren remained very close with her parents. In fact, her and her mom talked on the phone daily. And Jill, her mom, admits that she might have bordered on being a helicopter mom, but Lauren seemed not to mind and relied on her mom to listen to her, give her advice, and support her. On September 1st, Lauren and Alex went to a new bar near campus called the London Bell. This is where she would meet bouncer Melvin Shaw Rowland. He told her his name was Sean, he was 28 and in the military, and that he was taking classes at the local community college pursuing a degree in computer science. Now, Lauren really liked him. She liked his smile, his muscles, his height, and his charm. 
and he made sure that she and Alex got a table in the crowded nightclub. She gave him her number, and starting the very next day, he was wooing her hard. Flowers, dinner, the works. And the two started dating shortly thereafter. They were in a whirlwind romance. Now, he was more mature than the college boys, and he seemed so worldly, being from New York and being a military man. And Lauren liked that. And he was all in from day one, spending every night in her dorm room. Uh, I always worry about these relationships that are... They, they just happen so quickly when you're together. Like, you know, th- there's not normal progression of dating. Like all of a sudden they're together every single moment. It's really not a very healthy sign, I think, in the beginning. Yeah. And I think you'll see some other unhealthy signs as we move through the okay. story, Megan. Now, Melvin was working as a security guard for a private company. And many nights he was just a contract bouncer for the London Bell. So he didn't actually work for that nightclub or bar particularly. He worked for the security oh, okay. company. So no background checks had been done on Melvin by this security firm. You know, that's pretty ironic, isn't it? It's a security firm who doesn't conduct a background check. Doesn't that seem ironic? You would think they would know better. Yes. Actually, Megan, they were forcibly disbanded in late 2018 when it was discovered by authorities that the company had not gone through the state's required licensing process for a security firm. So they were basically just some guys with no credentials working security for hire. Great. Lauren and Melvin dated for a few weeks, and her friends quickly noticed that she was being controlled. She would say things like, I'm allowed to bring some friends to meet Melvin tonight, or he wants me to wear jeans. She also always made sure to answer the phone when he called, no matter what she was doing. And when one of her friends inquired about why she jumped when he snapped his fingers, she said that he had insecurities because of past bad relationships. Her friends would say he was controlling, possessive, and jealous. He didn't want Lauren going to parties where other men were going to be, and he wanted her to buy a gun to protect herself. From what? It's unclear. That's strange. That's an odd detail about the gun. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Lauren refused to see it, and instead she would defend him when her friends tried to raise the issue that maybe she could use a little space. As Lauren's friends would say, it was not her nature to badmouth anyone, even if it was warranted. So Alex and two of her friends took things into their own hands and reported to the university housing department to a woman named Diamond Jackson that Melvin was staying in Lauren's dorm room all the time, that he was controlling and obsessive, and that he wanted to get Lauren a gun. And he talked about guns a lot. They also said that Lauren was withdrawn and not taking care of herself. Diamond then sent an email to her supervisor expressing these concerns. But nothing was done. Well, that's a shame because these are pretty smart friends. You know, these are the kind of friends that when you say, you know, when we talk about if only someone had said something, all these friends did say something and probably with good cause. Yes. And the woman who received the email did her job as well by by escalating the situation to her boss. But it seems like nothing happened from that point. That's a shame. Lauren's parents still lived in Pullman, Washington, and she would often go home to them during break. Lauren went home to her parents' place in Pullman, Washington for fall break over the October 5th and 6th weekend. While she was home, she and a friend were looking up Sean online. And Megan, they found a photo of him, but he wasn't Sean, he was Melvin. But it was clearly him, and not only was his name a lie, he was also a registered sex offender who had done a decade's prison time. Oh, and he was 36, not 28, as he had told Lauren. Oh, gosh, this is terrible. 
I don't think you'd be surprised to know that Lauren decided that she was going to break up with him when she got back to campus. Apparently, she did so on October 9th. On that day, she confronted him in her apartment. This is from the Deseret News. Lauren confronted Roland about his lies and criminal history and broke up with him. He said he was framed by a girl he met at a fraternity party, that she was 17 and that he hadn't done anything wrong, even though, according to his plea, he had admitted to soliciting sex from a 13-year-old girl. It continues, I only pled guilty because I had to, he insisted. So Lauren told him it was over, um, but for reasons we'll never know, she allowed him to spend the night and she also loaned him her car the next day to run errands. Lauren was very kind-hearted, so I think it makes sense why she was taking this approach. Or as we'll come to find out later, she was fearful of him. Later in the day on October 10th, Lauren requested that Melvin return her car. Her mom, Jill, was very concerned about her meeting up with Melvin, and she called the campus police and requested a security escort for when Lauren picked up the vehicle. According to a Utah Department of Public Safety report, quote, Lauren's mother expressed that she worried that she was worried that Lauren would pick up the vehicle alone and that someone would hurt her. She stated that Lauren's ex-boyfriend was dangerous. He had lied to her and deceived her. So campus dispatch contacted Lauren, who told them that she did not need help. Melvin had said that he would just drop the vehicle off outside of her house. But then Lauren called dispatch back because the vehicle had actually been left at a nearby stadium and she was requesting a security escort to go pick it up. And on the phone, it was reported that she sounded scared. She was afraid of what would happen to her if she met up with Melvin. So, and I think this is great that the Department of Public Safety would do this for her. They picked her up at her dorm and drove her to her car and made sure she was safely inside the vehicle before clearing the report. Mm -hmm. Now, Lauren's mom had also called back several times to be sure that the escorted pickup had actually happened and that Lauren was protected. And all of these calls are on record. Just two days later, on October 12th, Lauren started receiving text messages from an unknown number. In fact, she received a few messages from a few different numbers. And the senders claimed to be friends of Melvin saying innocuous things at first, like, why'd you break up with the big guy? He really loves you. But they escalated to telling her that he was dead and that it was her fault that he had killed himself and asking if she would go to the funeral. Other messages suggested that she should kill herself. Now, the messages were ominous enough that she reported them to the university police who took a report. The officer who took the report advised Lauren that not much could be done without threats or anything criminal in nature, but advised her to warn the message senders to stop contacting her or it would become harassment. I was going to say, isn't this, uh, that's exactly what I was thinking. This sounds like harassment anyway, a course of conduct that would make someone feel threatened. And I think this sounds threatening. Yeah, I'm not sure why it wasn't harassment yet at this point. Okay. So even though the messages from Melvin's, quote, friends claim that Melvin was dead, he had texted her, so clearly he was not. He asked her to forward him these texts and led her to believe that he would find the people responsible for sending them. He made it so that she wasn't sure what was going on, whether he was behind it at all or not. Now, this is directly from the Utah Department of Public Safety report, quote, During the time of these messages and the investigation, university police were unable to determine if it was Roland or other people behind the messages sent to McCluskey. Roland posed as other individuals from unknown numbers while continuing to communicate with McCluskey from an unknown number, 
feigning that he was upset that McCluskey was being harassed with the messages. None of the messages contained threats of violence or harm. Then the next day on the 13th, Lauren filed a second report with the university police that stated that she was being extorted. Someone had threatened to publicly circulate explicit photos of her that she had sent to Melvin or that he had taken of her. And she was told if she did not pay $1,000, these photos would be circulated. I mean, this is a crime right here. We've got extortion right here. Absolutely. And so she confronted Melvin about the extortion, or she confronted him over text. And he told her that he, too, was being extorted. This guy. The individual then sent the photos to Lauren to prove that he had them. One photo showed Lauren's face and her recognizable dorm room. Her life would be over if this ever got out. So unfortunately, she sent $1,000 by Venmo. I I, I can't. So this is so disgusting and I feel so terrible for her. But she's a smart girl because she and her friend Alex immediately went to the station and met with Officer Miguel Darris to file a report about the extortion. Now, they were surprised that the officers didn't seem too concerned about any of it. The officers suggested that maybe someone hacked Melvin's phone and said that since Lauren wasn't sure that the extortionist was Melvin, that the police couldn't really do anything. Officeris didn't even talk to Melvin and no one even looked up his offender status because, Megan, if they had, they would have learned that he was on parole and was in violation of his parole because of his extorting Lauren and he would have been arrested. And not to mention, there is absolutely something you can do. You can check his phone. And if he's on well, parole, then he has there's a lesser threshold. They he would be subject um, to, you know, having to do checks on his phone. Uh, it would be a different standard because he's on parole that he, there's an expected. Um, I hate to say invasion of privacy, but that is what's expected mm-hmm. on parole. So there was a lot that, in fact, could have been done. Well, get this, Megan, according to Alex, one of the officers who looked up Roland He was looking him up on the campus directory, and he told Lauren that this guy seemed like a pretty good guy who had only been stopped for a traffic ticket on campus. However, it would be later revealed that they looked up the wrong person who happened to be a student with the same name. So in response to this, Lauren showed them the mugshot and let them know of his sex offender status. Um, But as Alex says, they still didn't seem particularly worried And they told Lauren and Alex that a detective would be in touch. Right. Lauren's report was then referred to the University of Utah police detective Kayla Daloff. Now, she had gone on vacation right after she got the report. She was scheduled for a vacation. That same day, Lauren called the Salt Lake City Police Department, saying that the university police hadn't done anything. She also said that the person who was harassing her seemed to know everything about the police investigation. What she didn't know at the time, and which no one did, was Melvin had been using her email password. She had once checked her email on his phone, so I guess he saved this information, and he was able to see everything that she was emailing the investigators about. The Salt Lake City officer told her to go back to the campus police because it was their jurisdiction. Now, Officer Darris of the university police asked Lauren to send him the explicit photos that were the subject of the threats, and so she did. And she trusted that they would be safe in the hands of police. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. It only takes an instant for your entire world to change. We're talking about the families of missing persons. Now, maybe you can help bring their loved ones home. Somebody somewhere knows what happened. 
Dateline, Missing in America, the hit podcast returns with an all-new season. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. It's still not too late to tell what you know. None of what I'm going to tell you now is learned until later, but on October 16th, Melvin told co-workers at the General Dynamics Call Center where he worked that he had extorted Lauren. He actually told his supervisor and another colleague that he had, quote, sex-torted the university student that he had been seeing. And he also laid out all the details about the photos and about the $1,000 Venmo payment. He also said he had access to her email and that he could see that she had messaged the campus police. He said he was very afraid of going back to prison. So this is escalating very quickly. Unfortunately, Megan, these coworkers were not like Lauren's friends. They did not say anything. Because if either coworker had reported this, Melvin would have been arrested for a parole violation. But no one seemed to bat an eye about what he was bragging about. That is so unfortunate. On October 19th, the assigned university campus police detective finally called Lauren back. Lauren told her that she believed the person extorting her was Melvin himself because one of the photos that was sent to her as part of this extortion plot was one that she and he had taken together. She also reported that she had received a phone call from him trying to disguise his voice and using an unfamiliar number. The detective told her that she would work on it, but that it would take some time. She didn't read an email that Lauren sent her on that day, the 19th, until after Lauren was already murdered. Over the next two days, Lauren collected screenshots of continued harassment messages from Melvin and sent them to the police. She asked her friend Shelby to meet her at the library, saying that she didn't know what to do. Her ex was scaring her and the police were not doing anything. Sounds like she, I mean, I'm sure you're going to address it, but I'm trying to count the number of times she uh, called the police and it sounds like it's a lot. Megan, from October 10th to October 22nd, she called the campus police department more than 20 times reporting her concerns. I mean, this is not a case where they didn't have the information. It's such a shame. No, she was crying out for help. And as we'll discuss, she was clearly failed. On October 22nd, Lauren received a message from a number that she did not recognize but they claim to be the deputy chief of the University of Utah Police Department. She's smart, Megan. She reported this message because she felt that its intent was to lure her out of her home where someone could get to her. The detective who took the report told her to ignore it. But eventually, you know, Lauren was a good student. She had to go to class. So she went to a meeting and then she went to the student union and she was going about her day. Meanwhile, there were multiple videos of Melvin that day dressed in black, carrying a bag, stalking around the campus looking for Lauren. Several times he is actually seen inside the dorm building, having been let in by students who were coming and going. At one point, he is visible in full Deadpool costume, just moments behind Lauren as she enters her dorm building. And she clearly did not know that he was there. How haunting is this? This is haunting, yeah. Sometime later that afternoon... A a guy who lived in the dorm building let him in. Now, this was a neighbor of Lauren's who was acquainted with Melvin because he had seen him around with Lauren. Melvin asked this guy if he could hang out in his room with him and his buddies. Basically, Melvin wanted a vantage point near Lauren's room to wait for her. How this is like 
I'm getting the chills as I read this. There were so many opportunities for things to go different in this case. Melvin would hang out in this guy's dorm room all afternoon. And he told these students that he was a student named Apollo and that he was a Marine and a senior with their 3.7 GPA. He then asked the students if they had any idea what was in his bag. And if they did, they'd be, quote, tripping. He then showed them a gun and told the students that it was a military-issued Beretta. None of these students were afraid or reported anything? I mean, okay. Or it's possible they were afraid, and that's why they didn't report anything. Okay. Well, around 7.30, the student left to go to the library, and Roland, now 8.10, he was seen on an exterior camera walking off in the other direction. Around 8.18 p.m. that same night, Lauren walked toward her dorm on the phone with her mother. And the Deseret News had a great article about how Jill, who was on the Stairmaster at the time, and she had her phone on speaker while she was talking with Lauren as she finished her workout. And this is, according to, again, the Deseret News, this is what transpired. Lauren said to her mom, I've got good news, mom. She had done well on a quiz that she just had taken in her health communications class. And she had a big assignment due at midnight in an online theater class that she was taking. But she was on top of it, she reassured her mom, and she was headed back to her dorm to turn it in early. Now, Lauren's tone was so lively and animated that her father, Matt, was able to hear her from the next room. And Matt says he almost called out to Jill to turn the speakerphone down, but he said he stopped himself because Lauren sounded so lighthearted and he couldn't bring himself to interrupt. I love you, Mom, Lauren had said as she was wrapping up the call. Then, in an instant, everything changed. No, Lauren says, no longer talking to Jill. And then the words come gushing out in a torrent-laced panic. No, 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 no. Lauren begins screaming as her mom helpless yelled, Lauren. Oh, my gosh. Her mom was on the phone when this happened. This is, oh, such an awful thing for her mom to have to relive. And this was so close to the entrance of her dorm, so close, in fact, that that Melvin's feet can be seen on the surveillance footage from the dorm entrance, because as you probably guessed by now, it was more it was Melvin who grabbed Lauren. He then carried her to an adjacent student parking lot there. He threw her in a car he had borrowed from his neighbor and shot her seven times. He then slammed the door and ran. So he I'm sorry, he carried her to the car, you're saying from the dorm? Yeah. Megan, and not only that, saw or intercede. Uh, it's it's bizarre Megan, to me. Her parents heard the whole thing because the phone was still on speakerphone. Oh. So of course they called the campus police at eight twenty three frantically, saying we think something happened to our daughter. He sounded. He said it sounded like somebody grabbed her. Unfortunately, Lauren's phone was silent, but it was still connected, and a female medical student had picked it up. And she also said there was a phone, a laptop, and a backpack on the ground, but nobody was in sight. And Lauren's parents asked her to please stay there and call the campus police. Two other people called the campus police about this time. One said that they saw a backpack on the ground, and the other was a student saying that someone's things were scattered on the ground, and the police could be heard saying, I think we have a kidnapping. you imagine the parents? They live 600 miles away. And they're hearing all this on the phone. No, I can't. The campus quickly went into a shelter in place. The police didn't know what was going on. They flooded the parking lot and the dorm by just 832. 
Melvin was immediately identified as a suspect in the shooting, and information about his identity and wanted status were broadcast as an alert at 10.10 p.m. And as I said, the McCluskeys felt helpless. They waited for information. Um, from they, they didn't know what was going on. They could only hope that, you know, their daughter would be found okay. It didn't take police long to find Lauren. Some students had heard shots and shell casings lay on the ground. At 9.55 p.m., police found Lauren's dead body in the back seat of a silver Buick Lancer parked in, the park, parked in the parking lot right outside her dorm, right near where she had been abducted. Lauren's track coach had been the one to call Jill to tell her the devastating news. Meanwhile, Melvin cut across the campus, which was now dark, and he called a woman he had met on a dating site and asked her to pick him up. He told her he had just finished a workout at the university gym. This is not a very bright guy. I mean, how did he think he was going to get away? I can't imagine he thought he was going to get away with this. I really don't understand that. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't. I don't know if he just didn't think this through or at this point he just didn't care. So let me tell you what ends up happening. Melvin was picked up at a campus light rail station at 8.38 p.m. by a Hyundai Sonata. And this is all on video. He and his female companion went to dinner, then went to her place where he took a shower, and then she dropped him at a coffee shop and went home. It was then that she saw his photo on TV, although the name didn't match the name of the man she was dating. She was able to call police and, you know, tell them what she had known. Now, the campus was the campus was crawling with police. Students were on lockdown and the parking lot was cordoned off. Around 12.45 a.m., officers spotted Melvin on foot and they went into pursuit. He forced entry to a nearby church by breaking down the door. He ran upstairs and shot himself in the head as officers approached. Melvin Rowland, a convicted sex offender and parolee, shot himself with the same gun that he had used to shoot Lauren with. Did he die? Yes, he did. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. Classes were canceled on the 23rd as word spread across the campus that a student had been killed. Lauren's parents flew in and a memorial service was held. Teammates spoke about her, people laid flowers on steps, and everyone was just in shock. Track coach said, quote, Lauren's kindness, positive attitude, and work ethic were always on display, regardless of the people she was with or the activity she was involved in as a student athlete at the university. It's simply who she was. She was always present and in the moment with her teammates and friends. That is more difficult than we all realize in today's world. Yet she did it with ease and grace on a regular basis with everyone she knew. Are you going to tell us a little bit more about Melvin's background? Yeah, so Melvin was born in Brooklyn, New York on May 12th, 1981. And he was adopted by a couple, Austin and Anne Rowland. He later said that his childhood was completely normal, although his adoptive parents died when he was just 15 years old. He was then placed in a group home and went to school for troubled youth in Colorado. He then returned to New York. Then Melvin moved from New York to Utah when he was 20 years old to participate in the Job Corps program. We recently talked about the Job Corps program in another one of our episodes. Yeah. And he lived with roommates in Salt Lake City while attending the program. And then he was enrolled at the university from fall of 2003 to spring of 2004. So I just want to give you a little rundown of his criminal history. It'll give you a much clearer idea of who Melvin was and what events led to this tragedy. In September of 2003, Melvin committed two sex crimes. 
He contacted a 13-year-old girl online who was actually a federal agent in a sting and proposed, quote, wild sex. He was arrested and police learned that two days earlier, he had sexually assaulted a 17-year-old girl that he met online. He was 22 at this time. Now, his victim had a rape kit done and there was plenty of evidence, but he was offered a plea deal. And on March 15th, 2004, Melvin pled guilty to enticing a minor over the Internet and attempted forced sexual abuse. In July of 2004, he was sentenced to one to 15 years in prison. In a parole hearing in 2012, Melvin admitted to raping two other women and admitted to using his, quote, manipulation to, quote, get what he wanted. He said, I know I have the capability of reoffending. Nonetheless, Megan, in July of that year, he was released on parole. You're kidding. I mean, this is, I don't even understand. And I don't understand in this era, a sentence of one to 15 years. We don't usually do those large indeterminate sentences anymore. Yep. And just a few months later, I'm sure you're not surprised that Melvin was sent back to prison for four parole violations, which included failure to permit his parole officer to search his person, home or vehicle, failure to participate in sex offender therapy, having porn in his possession and failing to comply with Utah sex offender requirements. Then in 2013, he was released on parole yet again. And during this time, he fathered a son. In October of 2015, Melvin again violated parole. He was in a car accident in which he rear-ended another vehicle. He jumped out, forced his way into the passenger seat of a nearby car, and made the driver, who of course was fearful, drive him home. He then reported his car stolen to his insurance company. So his new parole violations now included the criminal offense of kidnapping, um, the offense of damaged property, uh, traffic hit and run, and fraud. So he's really racking up the charges. Yeah. He's a career criminal who keeps getting released uh, unbelievably, even with all the uh, risk prediction instruments that we have. Mm -hmm. This is just an, un this is unbelievable. And we're not done. He was also found to be in violation of having access to the internet or social media and for having materials in his possession that, that quote, acts as a sexual stimulus for his deviancy. All of this, of course, violated his parole agreement. And when parole agents came to arrest him, he literally ran and hid. But a woman he was dating convinced him to surrender. So then on February 17th, 2016, he called his parole officer and turned himself in to finish his sentence. At this time, he said he did not agree with the conditions of his parole, and he believed that he should be allowed to date online and use the Internet. He said when he was paroled in the future, if an agent were to come to his home and conduct a field visit, he would not act appropriately and would become very angry or violent. He was once again sent back to a Utah state prison. March 30th of the same year, talking a little over a month later, there was a parole board hearing and the board hearing officer testified that she felt that Melvin was a public safety issue. Every time he had been on parole, it had been discovered that he was accessing the Internet and seeking sexual partners. While in prison, he also demonstrated predatory behavior and had tried to get a female inmate, one that had been released, to wear provocative clothing across the street so he could watch her from a window. He also tried to manipulate a jail employee to get access to the Internet. And so on, Megan. This is clearly somebody that should not be on the streets. 
But unfortunately, Melvin was released on April 17th, 2018 after completing sex offender therapy. The conditions of his release included no internet access, no social media accounts, and a completion of a sex offender program. On May 29th, 2018, Melvin received a verbal warning from his parole agent when she discovered that he was on an online dating site, which was in violation of his conditions of, a, of parole. A few months later, in August, he tested positive for marijuana, again, violating conditions of his parole. Unfortunately, he was only given a verbal warning on both of these occasions. And just the next month, September 1st, Melvin would meet Lauren McCluskey. So this is someone who should have very clearly not been in the public. This is a colossal failure. This is just a colossal failure. And it's like when we talk about who should be on the registry, when I teach about that, I I talk about it's not usually the registry that's the problem. It's the problem is that this is someone who was apprehended and never punished appropriately. And he's the clearest predator and career offender. It's it's such a colossal failure. After Melvin died by suicide, women came forward to report their interactions with him. The Salt Lake Tribune found three to four other women that he had dated for a short period of time that he had treated the same way that he did to Lauren. And all of these women felt very lucky to be alive. One woman reported that the two had dated in 2015. And when she broke up with him, he stole stuff from her room and she had to change her locks. Another had reported him to the police in July of 2018 because he would not leave her alone. They had gone on one date. And when she cut things off with him, he harassed her. However, the police, again, like they had done before, determined that he wasn't doing anything criminal. And then Melvin's ex, the one who's the mother of his son and also a university employee, said that he harassed her to the point that she wrote a cease and desist letter in 2015 and sent it to his parole officer. And then she sent the parole officer yet another letter in 2018. So other than everything I just talked about with his violations, they were also getting letters from people saying that this man was dangerous. Also, police learned that Melvin used many names, profiles, and cell phone numbers to interact with masses of women while avoiding detection from his parole officer and also to avoid the women putting together his true identity and his background. And this is how he had texted Lauren from so many numbers because he had multiple phones. This guy is undeterrable. He's on parole. Do we know where he is? So he's not supposed to have firearms legally. which I assume he didn't, but do we know where he actually acquired the firearm from? Yeah, good question, because as you said, as a felon, it's illegal for him to possess a firearm, much less purchase one. It turns out that he had asked a friend of his, Nathan Vogel, to help him get a gun because he said he wanted to teach his girlfriend, Lauren, how to shoot. So Nathan went to a gun store in the company of a female friend, Sarah Emily Lady, who actually bought the gun. Now, Nathan was arrested after Lauren's murder for illegal handgun purchase, and he pled guilty in June 2019, and he was sentenced to three years of probation. Sarah's case was dismissed in September 2020 after she completed a 12-month diversion program. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. So, we're going to switch gears a bit because this Next part, Megan, is truly shocking. 
It came out that on October 15th, Officer Miguel Deris of the University Campus Police, the one who took Lauren's initial report, had shared Lauren's explicit photos with his colleagues. He had forwarded the images to the detectives in charge, but he had retained copies for his own purposes and showed them to other officers. Oh. I, I, if, if you don't tell me that, that, that he was fired, that there's charges, if you don't tell me something, I'm, yeah, you better tell me something about this. All right. So, all right, let's spend a moment talking about this. Well, I can tell you that Jill McCluskey, Lauren's father, tweeted, quote, Michael Derrish showed Lauren's private images to officers unrelated to her case. It is a misdemeanor to share nude photos without consent. His actions cause harm to us and to women who will now hesitate to report to police. In 2020, Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill decided that there were not grounds to slap him with criminal charges for this. He stated that while the officer's conduct was reckless, he had doubts that they could prove that it was, quote, knowing, which is the standard needed to fit a charge of official misdemeanor, which would be a Class B misdemeanor. And, of course, the officer denies any wrongdoing, claiming that he was showing the photos to colleagues in a shift change briefing because he was seeking guidance on how to properly store them. And he had also showed the photo to help a sergeant in the investigation. Was he reprimanded, fired, anything? Do we know? So the state, although state investigators didn't conclude that he saved the files or emailed them to anyone, it was known that he accessed them multiple times and showed them to others on his phone on at least four occasions, according to a review conducted by the Utah Department of Public Safety. And on two occasions, he showed the photos to fellow officers and supervisors, apparently asking on how to handle the digital evidence. Some officers did report that there was some unprofessional comments being made, one recalling that he said he could, quote, look at the pictures whenever he wanted. Yeah, this is an extreme failure. And the university police started an internal investigation and the university students in Utah staged rallies and walkouts demanding Darris to be fired. There was also a change.org petition that demanded his termination that got signed by over 135,000 people. The whole thing was an absolute mess and resulted in the university's police deputy chief resigning and two officers being terminated. But Darish just ended up on another local police force, although he did end up being fired when more news came out. So he was fired. It doesn't censor Gary Herbert ordered an investigation into how the Utah Board of Corrections and the Utah Board of Pardons and Parole handled Melvin's case. The report, which we had cited several times in our research, was issued on December 19th, 2018. Basically, it summarized all of Melvin's incarceration and parole history. It recommended that parole status be added to criminal history reports and said if the campus police had known he was on parole and communicated his harassment of Lauren to his parole officer, then he then then he could have been prevented from killing her. But believe it or not, the university president made a public statement Quote, this report does not offer us reason to believe that this tragedy could have been prevented. Yeah, I would disagree with that. Obviously, it's they're just worried probably for the PR of the university at this point. On March 13th, the Utah legislator passed a campus safety bill supported by the McCluskeys. 
The bill would force greater accountability on colleges by requiring them to develop and publicize a plan to make sure those who are stalked, sexually assaulted, or abused by a significant other can report the crime and get the help they need. But that definitely was not enough for the family. They were really angry at the university's remarks, you know, claiming that it wasn't their fault and that this couldn't have been prevented. So the McCluskey sued the university in federal court and sought $56 million in damages. The main points being that the police ignored Lauren's reports of stalking, physical and emotional abuse, intimidation, dating violence, and other behavior. And the attorney said that they hoped to prove, quote, deliberate indifference by the university. The McCluskeys also filed a wrongful death suit in state court. The lawsuit maintained that the school authorities, the police, and the housing department ignored Lauren's pleas for help and maintained that the school had a history of looking past harassment of women in its community. Now, both lawsuits were settled, and there was an announcement that an agreement had been reached and was issued on October 22, 2020, which was the second anniversary of Lauren's murder. The state would pay $10.5 million to the family, and the university would pay $3 million to Lauren McCluskey Foundation, which was started by her parents. Importantly, the school also agreed to make improvements to campus safety by training employees, educating students, consolidating evening classes. Citations from the university's internal review were, impl- were implemented, and the entire campus safety department was restructured with 94% of it in- with 94% of its employees departing. Now there was a whole new chain of command structure put in place. So Lauren's parents, you know, they got what they wanted. They got an acknowledgement that the school had failed Lauren and new policies and procedures put in place to prevent this type of tragedy from happening in the future. In a press conference that announced the settlement, the university finally acknowledged and deeply regretted that it had not handled Lauren's case as it should have and that... They were now honoring Lauren and ensuring that her legacy would improve campus safety for all students. And Jill McCluskey, Lauren's mother, also spoke at the conference saying, quote, This settlement is important for many reasons. It addresses how Lauren died, but it also honors how she lived. All of the money from the settlement will go to support the Lauren McCluskey Foundation missions, which include campus safety, animal welfare, and amateur athletics. And as part of the settlement, the university also pledged to raise funds to construct an indoor track facility and name it after Lauren McCluskey. And they promised to do this by the year 2030. The family ended the press conference by saying Lauren McCluskey will always be associated with the need to more carefully monitor and make safe our nation's campuses. Because of Lauren and the cause that bears her name, lives will be saved. Now, this case, Megan, is One of those cases that illustrates all of the good that can come out of tragedy. Of course, we can say too little, too late, because this young woman was failed so many points in the system by people at the university, people who were supposed to protect her and just even, you know, the parole system. But even Melvin's employees, Melvin's past relationships, like there's so many points where somebody could have said something and this could have been prevented. This is one of the most preventable stories I think we have told. I would have to agree. I think this would have been, this was one of those highly preventable crimes that frustrates me. I know that we're focusing, I know that we like to focus on the positive outcomes, but I will say at the end of the story, which I've known in general, but not all the specifics, I do feel so frustrated 
that this young woman's cries for help went unanswered. I agree. But to end on a positive note, I am pleased to see that, you know, the fact that they were able to finally admit wrongdoing and that 94 percent of the employees and their public safety, like there's a whole new chain of command. They changed over 30 policies. So um, I think that other universities can maybe look at some of these policy changes and instead of being reactive, let's be proactive and implement some of these changes before there's another Lauren McCluskey. I agree, Amy. I hope that these changes will result in the protection of their students going forward and the protection of other students. Yes. Thank you all so much for listening today. And just to let you know, this is our last episode of the season. We hope that you will join us back for the next season of Campus Killings in the fall. That's right, Amy. Uh, For all of our listeners, we will be on hiatus for the summer just like all schools are, and we will be returning with new episodes beginning in September. And just to let everyone know, we've read your reviews and heard your feedback, and so we'll also have some changes to our format that we hope you'll enjoy. Please let us know what you think. Leave us a review. Have a wonderful summer, and we'll see you all in the fall on Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.